Welcome to another event um, organized by the Eastern Center. As you know, this is our last event, well, not our last event for the term. Uh, but I'm really delighted uh, to welcome tonight's speaker, my colleague, and my neighbor. And that's, that's you know, Westminster University Professor Roland uh, Dan uh, Reuter. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Dan Reuter? Because we were, we were, you know, saying Dan Rother, no, Dan Reuter. So it was Dan Reuter, right? This is, uh, and, uh, I know, which is, but we were debating the, the pronunciation of the name. And uh, some of us were saying, no, Dan Rother. And I said, no, Dan Reuter is the correct pronunciation. Uh, and I'm glad I was on the, uh, the right, in the right camp. Uh, he will address his topic is called energy security and shifting global uh, power. Uh, uh, Ronald will examine the implications of two shifts uh, in the distribution of power in international politics. Uh, so two basic shifts. The first is the flow of energy from east to west. You know this. It's uh, the second uh, shift is the flow from consumers of energy to producers of energy with what uh, Professor Denbrook would call the rise of resource uh, nationalism. And I think he will give us today uh, a, an assessment of what the two shifts mean for international relations and the global uh, uh, balanced uh, power. Just a few words about uh, our speaker tonight for some of you who do not uh, know him, but I'm sure uh, most of you know his work because that's why you're here. He joined the University of Westminster in 2009 as head of the politics department. He's also a professor of international relations at the University of Westminster and was previously a professor of international relations at the University of Edinburgh and also a faculty fellow at the Geneva Center for Security Policy. Uh, his research focus uh, is basically on uh, security studies and international relations. If there is really one particular uh, uh, focus that he has over the years, over the last 15 years, is security studies and international relations with a regional focus, in particular on Russia, Central Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, and like many of us, he's very much interested in historical sociology and international relations, because really, historical sociology provides a framework, a key, you might say, to unlock uh, some of the puzzles of both international relations uh, and uh, international uh, security. Um, I mean, I really don't have the time to tell you how prolific uh, he has been. He has written extensively, and I'm bloody jealous. I really I am. <laughs> and if you see the list of books, I don't know how he has written. You're talking about, just to give you an idea, a, a glimpse of the diversity of, of books that he has written. Uh, his new book, uh, his forthcoming book, is coming out uh, this year. It's called Global Resources, uh, Conflict, and Cooperation. Uh, uh, his book, his most recent book, that also published in 2013, um, is titled China, Oil, and Global Politics, and published by uh, Routledge, 2013. His other books, one of my favorite books, and I mentioned to him, uh, I assigned in one of my texts, it's called Russia and Islam, uh, State, Society, and Radicalism published, I think, 2011 or 10. Uh, and uh, another book, my favorite, is called International Security, the Contemporary Agenda. It's 
published by uh, Polity uh, Press. And there are several, four or five books, other books, uh, that I don't have the time uh, to mention. So really, for all these reasons, and also because he's a dear colleague and neighbor, and also a, 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 an Oxford uh, uh, mate for many years, please join me in welcoming him to the London School of Economics Conference. I think I've never had such a charming and generous introduction. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we do go back some time, in fact, yes. from, from, from our PhD days. And we were just saying that uh, although we've been in London now for three yes. years, it's the first time we've actually met, which is always a problem when you're actually close by uh, and in neighboring institutions, so we don't actually get to know, get to know each other. Um, I'm going to talk about sort of energy security and geopolitics. I mean, it won't be directly on, on the Middle East, but I'll bring in the Middle East in, in various parts. Um, I guess uh, it's quite nice. Uh, it's very nice to see everyone here, particularly last week, and also on a very cold day like this. And energy security is something which, which is quite uh, helpful to us to be warm uh, in this building. Um, as um, uh, Florence was mentioning, uh, just to give a little context of, of, of my interests, um, I, I came to energy politics through somewhat indirect route. Um, and the work uh, I did on China um, and global oil uh, and politics was one aspect clearly of a very important dynamics in the international politics uh, of energy. Um, and then the other book which is coming out on this conflict and cooperation was part of an EU project or derived from an EU project which looked at the whole issue of conflict and cooperation over access to oil, gas and minerals in the past and to the next 40 years. Uh, and that provides a very good, I think, sort of has brought me thinking more broadly about the issue uh, of energy security. Uh, and now I'm trying to write a book actually on energy security. Um, and this is very much part of my thinking about this and based on a paper uh, which I gave uh, last week. Um, so I'm, I think one of the interesting things about energy security is that a lot of people working on the area of energy. Um, but they tend not that many political scientists or people in international relations working in this area. Tends to be economists, uh, geologists, um, economic uh, economists. There are rather few number of people who are working in the area actually in terms of relating this to political and international relations development, um, which I think is interesting in itself. Um, but also, I think it gives an opportunity to try and think how the, the issue of energy connects with dynamics in international relations. It's something which is somewhat uh, understudied. So what I'm going to do is, um, uh, it's going to be a slightly free-ranging, uh, wide-ranging analysis. But I want to start with looking at the, the concept of energy security um, and trying to understand what it meant by energy security. Um, and then, uh, uh, as uh, I was mentioning, uh, uh, that we're both interested in historical sociology, I want to put this in a historical context uh, and look how the concept of energy security developed over time into different historical periods. Um, and on that basis, to look at how uh, a period of the 2000s onwards, which is a period I think where energy security has uh, increased on the political agenda, uh, what are the key developments that have taken place, what are the key impacts on international relations, uh, international politics? Um, and as mentioned, what I really want to argue is that there is this dual shift that is contributed to, um, one shift in a sense away from west to east, which is part of that general shift you have in geopolitics towards the rise of China. But also, and sometimes we often also, it involves a shift of power, distribution of power, from resource importing countries, consumers, to uh, oil and energy exporting countries. So you do have a, 
a shift of power also to those countries of the Middle East, oil producers, and in other parts of the world, Russia, um, Central Asia, um, Latin America, Africa, uh, which is significant. And I also want to argue that that is not just a material shift, it is also an ideological shift, or it contributes to an ideological shift um, away from, in a sense, what you have, uh, what we call in the book, if there's a soundbite, from liberal capitalism, so neoliberal understanding of the international economy, to a more state capitalist conception of international political economy, that the state is much more involved, and I think that is very critically linked to uh, the area uh, of energy. Um, and then I want to conclude really by looking at how I think the energy security is leading to three very distinct, different uh, approaches. One in Asia, which is Asia meaning really right from East Asia, from China all the way to West Asia, the other term from the Middle East. Um, uh, and the second area is the United States, where another dynamic is emerging, particularly through increasing finding of domestic energy resources there um, with uh, shale, gas and oil. Um, and the European Union, uh, which has its own distinctive policy in relation to dealing with energy issues. And I think it's interesting how these three different regions and dynamics uh, are emerging. So that's what I'm generally going to talk about. And, um, um, and I'll start really with the meaning uh, of energy as security. Now, energy security, I think, is one of these topics I was actually just um, plowed through I'm writing this book, The Routledge Handbook of Energy Security, uh, which is a very brave thing to do. It's 26 chapters, about 1,000 pages long, and there are about 17 dimensions of energy security <laughs> included with that, and you sort of give up a little bit when you see this. Uh, so energy security, in one sense, is a, can be treated as a very multidimensional, complex concept. Um, uh, energy security uh, in this regard can include, I think, very basic things such as the fact that uh, almost one, uh, almost two billion of the world's population does not have access to modern the services provided by modern energy systems, the sort of services that we have here, of heating and light, etc. And that is a major source of insecurity uh, for most of the people uh, who lack uh, that basic access to energy. Um, it can also include, for instance, and many people in, uh, from the Middle East and elsewhere would say it's not uh, the conventional uncertainty, just about security of supply that we get access to these energy resources. There's also security of demand. The countries in the Middle East, oil producers and other countries, which are oil and gas producers, also have an interest in ensuring that their products, which they rely upon for their wealth and prosperity, uh, will um, uh, be used in the future, um, for future generations. Um, so many people fold in the concept of security demand and security supply. Clearly these days, the environment is very high on people's agenda, and the fact that there are um, uh, the whole issue of carbon emissions, of climate change, and many people arguing that energy security should incorporate notions of environmental uh, security. And then if you break down the whole notion of energy security, you actually see that there are very differences between different types of energy sources, such as oil and gas and nuclear, all have different security dimensions to them. So on the one hand, I think there is this quite complex notion of energy security. Um, for this 
purpose. So I'm going to just concentrate on the rather simple conceptualization of energy security, which I think is really the dominant use when people talk about it, energy security. The dominant use of it is linked to Western interests in a sense in security of oil supply um, and with a very strong focus in this regard of the Middle East uh, as an area which threatens potential energy uh, supplies. Um, and that, in a sense, is the sort of dominant usage of the term of energy security. It doesn't actually reflect what properly energy security should be incorporated, but um, particularly in the ways that, and I think the two periods I'll emphasize, the 1970s and the 2000s, is a period in which energy security becomes high on the uh, political uh, agenda. Um, now the roots of this, in a sense, go back to could be go back to Churchill, Winston Churchill, uh, who really introduced the notion of energy security uh, when he shifted uh, the Royal Navy from the use of coal to oil. Uh, and that was in, um, um, just before World War One in 1912. And the problem, in the sense of energy security, shifted from being one about coal, which actually has very significant security uh, implications are primarily domestic security implications, um, that coal miners are very powerful actors within domestic politics. Um, it was only in the 1980s that the coal miners were actually, uh, the strength of the power of coal miners was undermined in Britain, uh, through the coal strikes. Um, it still remains powerful in places like South Africa, where you see miners having a very critical role in the development and in challenging the ANC. And the shift to oil, in a sense, oil does not have the same domestic implications because it is much more capital intensive. It doesn't require so much labour to it. Um, it's much easier to transport, export. But it does produce an international security dimension in that much of that energy of oil is located in areas of the world which are insecure for various reasons. Particularly um, so in a sense, energy security, I think in a sense, Churchill's notion of energy security or use of it, in a sense, is the dominant form that we have, which is concern about oil and gas, um, but also uh, with a very strong focus upon the Middle East as well, um, um, uh, and the instability and insecurity in the Middle East. Now, when you look at the um, historical shifts uh, over energy security, the second part of what I want to talk about, um, I think you can say that there are sort of four major periods uh, in relation to energy security uh, concerns or how it has adapted and uh, developed uh, over time. Um, the first was, in a sense, after uh, World War I, um, up until around about the 1960s and 1970s. And energy security was then primarily about access to oil in the Middle East. And that was an essential result because you got the partition of the Middle East after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire between the major world powers at that time, excluding obviously the Bolshevik Russians uh, and, the, uh, um, um, and the defeated Germans, uh, but including uh, Britain, France, and also the United States, although the United States did not take territorial control of any of the territories in the Middle East, it had a very important proviso, which was an open-door policy, saying that U.S. oil companies should have the same rights as European oil companies 
in, the, in, uh, in being active uh, in, in this region. Um, so you have, in a sense, the problem of the Middle East, at least in part, the energy security issue resolved by Western control over the oil produced uh, in the Middle East. And the second aspect of this was, in a sense, a devolution of power, a responsibility for managing this away from states to the oil companies, to the major oil companies, what was called the Seven Sisters, the big energy, uh, oil companies that dominated the industry uh, through uh, until of the 1960s, 1970s, and still remain very powerful, the UPs and Shells, etc. Um, and what was important about, uh, in a sense, what was the interesting part of it, there was never really a free market in oil uh, in this period. Um, the oil companies actually, uh, the states, the Western states, acquiesced to a sort of collusion between these oil companies uh, to manage um, the oil resources uh, from the region. Uh, which ensured, in a sense, that they just managed the price of it, managed the market share between them, um, and particularly to ensure that, in a sense, what was actually much cheaper with Eastern oil did not undermine the oil industry in the United States, the very critical part of it. So, part of this was a subordination of the Middle East to the interests of the West, the interests of the oil companies, and which very little or very limited control over the over those resources, over the rents uh, that the countries value um, and the prices that the countries receive is very limited. Um, uh, but in a sense, from a Western perspective, this provides energy security ceased to become a major issue because it was very much dominated by these companies who provided the oil relatively cheaply in abundant supply and which in a sense fueled particularly European reconstruction uh, in the post-World War II period, about 30 glorious years, as they say in France, uh, uh, of, was very much linked to oil-replacing coal uh, in the industries uh, in Europe. <coughs> so energy security, in a sense, was not high on the agenda from this period. And really, it was the 1970s, which I, I think really was the first energy security crisis we all know this is very much linked to the rise of OPEC, the rise to the nationalizations which took place through the region, uh, in the region of the Middle East and other parts of the oil producing world, um, to the um, uh, increasing conflict in the region as well, to the uh, Irish-Israeli conflicts and to the Iranian revolution. Our association with energy security is very much linked in a sense to this period of the 1970s when there was this major shift in power away from Western, uh, Western energy consumers to producers in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, uh, and associated in a sense with, with, with war and conflict uh, at that period. Now in a way I think part of this is a like, uh, misunderstanding to say that was purely driven by the increasing power and autonomy of the Middle East region, of, of the oil producing region. In part, this was actually driven by more economic factors, simply the fact that demand was increasing and there was a more limited supply. Um, so the bargaining power of those countries increased. Um, it was also driven, in fact, by the fact that there were the cartel of the Southern Sisters was broken down by independent European oil companies, such as in France and Italy, um, who broke into the market, in the sense, 
and through which the Middle East country could then negotiate between these different countries. It was only partly driven, though also driven by the fact that there was this shift towards greater resource nationalism in a sense, resource that these resources belong to these countries should not be under foreign control, and part of that dependency critique of moving away from being dominated uh, by Western companies and Western interests in those uh, old companies. And in fact, most of the changes took place prior to the 1973 war, which then led to the, and that war was, it was the period when the oil prices tripled um, in 1973, but actually most of those structural changes took place prior to that, to the 1973 war. Um, but the fact that they coincided with that war and also coincided with the second increase in 1979 of the Iranian Revolution meant that the West took a fairly confrontational attitude to that shift in power uh, from, um, uh, oil uh, from oil uh, consumers to oil producers, from oil imported countries from the West to oil uh, producing countries in the Middle East and elsewhere. And really what's happened in a sense you got from the 1980s and 1990s was a sort of Western counter-reaction against us, a mix of policies which sought in a sense to reduce their dependence, reduce their anxieties, reduce energy insecurity, which was felt in the West, uh, through a variety of, of policies that were put forward. Part of that, and there were three major aspects to that, part of that was due to just diversifying away from it. So, the international oil companies which are now not able to operate in the Middle East then shifted to areas such as the North Sea, Gulf of Mexico, also when the Soviet Union collapsed into Russia, Central Asia. Um, so there was a shift away from, in a sense, uh, production in the Middle East, although the reserves are much greater in the Middle East. It was also part of the problem the cartel that they, to maintain the prices they had to reduce the amount that they were producing. Um, and in the end, that was not sustainable. It led in the mid-1980s to a collapse in the oil price at that time. So it was diversification away from the Middle East. Also, there was diversification within Europe and other countries. Um, really, in the electricity sector, um, you need oil for transportation, planes, and things like that. But you don't need it for uh, electric uh, generation, power generation. So there's a shift away of what was at the time thought to nuclear energy, which was thought to be the great solution in the 1970s, to gas, and increasingly now to uh, renewables. Um, this is sometimes called, and technically, demand destruction. You know, see a deliberate policy to destroy demand uh, for oil uh, and oil products. So there was a sort of material shift, which I think led also, contributed to an ideological shift in the 1980s and 1990s, the period where the Washington Consensus, a neoliberal agenda which is very much focused upon privatization, deregulation, um, uh, economic liberalization, um, uh, uh, was part of this sort of shift back to the consumers to Western countries and to Western hegemony, um, which contributed, although I would say to some degree, to the collapse of the Soviet Union, because it was absolutely coincidental that the Soviet Union collapsed and oil prices were absolutely at their lowest. Um, and there's sometimes conspiracy theories of the Soviet-US plot to, uh, to, under, to, to, to undermine the Soviet Union. Um, and I think what's interesting in the way a lot of the social science literature contribution uh, 
academic debates contributed to this dynamic, I think, of neoliberal agenda, or liberal agenda in terms of privatization. Because you had um, emphasis upon um, uh, that sort of key mistake made by oil producing countries in the Middle East was the fact that they nationalized their own production, the national, that they uh, engaged in resource nationalism and, and the nationalization of their energy assets. That as a consequence of that, they became rentier states. Uh, they became purely allocative states, not really productive states. But as a consequence of that, they ceased to develop as fast in the Middle East as in other areas of the world, such as East Asia, which was energy poor. That uh, a consequence of that, there was a lack of democracy in the Middle East. There was the Middle East exception. Um, that, um, uh, and that oil was a particularly strong factor for explaining why the Middle East was not democratizing as in other parts of the world. There was also a lot about uh, resource wars, that, uh, a lot of literature about resource wars, which emphasized that wars were increasingly being driven by uh, competition over resources, over oil, but also other minerals. Um, I think you recently had Michael Ross here, who did a big book on the oil curse. And he actually emphasized, if you read that book, he's the big sort of guru on the uh, resource curse. And he says the failure, the real problem was that 1970s nationalization program is undertaken in the Middle East. And I think in a way, you've got a sort of, what you see here is a contribution to a sort of pathologization of the Middle East. Um, uh, that due to this oil wealth and the misuse of it, uh, you ended up with authoritarianism, weak development, gender inequality, resource wars, all the things that we popularly associated with the Middle East. Um, so I think in a way, the 1980s and 1990s, you know, which spans over the Cold War period, not directly into the Cold War, was a period where there was a sort of shift back to the resource um, uh, energy importing, resource importing countries to the West primarily, and away from the energy producing countries in the Middle East and other parts of the developing world. And to move to the present time, in a sense, the 2000s, I think, what's interesting, you had a reversal of that process, a reversal of um, uh, And you had the starting the 2000s and intensifying in the mid-2000s in particular and maintaining itself despite the economic recession uh, into the 2010s uh, is rising oil prices linked to a whole lot of other commodities uh, rising. Um, which has led to quite a significant shift of power, in a sense, economic power, but also political power, uh, away from, from the West, from the major importing countries, uh, to the exporting countries uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, and in popular conception, again, I think, again, the energy security, the rise of energy security, the fear of energy security, the anxieties of energy security are linked to this, both this economic shift, but also the political consequences of it. You see this in the ideas of the fears and concerns about Russia becoming under Putin, um, coincidental with the rise in oil prices. Uh, Putin is re-centralizing power, becoming, Russia is becoming more authoritarian, more anti-Western. Um, we're just now seeing the outpouring of grief with Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, which is again very much linked to, uh, again seen by many as the result of the increased oil prices. 
led to resource nationalism there, nationalization, to anti-Western policy, which has been reflected in other parts of Latin America uh, as well. Um, and clearly it's also linked to, to the rise of China, to this other dynamic that is emerging uh, as well. Um, and so I think, uh, in a way, I see this energy, the, the really coming back of energy security, this emphasis upon the problems of resource nationalism, the term often used, um, is very much linked to the shift of power, shift of power uh, anxieties in the West about the shift of power, both from West to East, to China and India, but also in terms uh, of a shift away from to resource-rich countries, from resource-poor countries. Um, and I think that's been, uh, that anxiety has increased also with the 2008 recession onwards. I think there are three dimensions of this um, um, which have similarities in the 1970s um, and uh, dissimilarities in the 1970s. It's quite a good way, I think, to structure this, to look at what is different and what is similar uh, to the situation now as it was in the 1970s. Um, firstly, clearly, as I argued, there is this shift away from energy importing to energy exporting countries. I think the interesting thing in some ways is the, in the political impact of this has been greater on the countries outside of the Middle East um, rather than in the Middle East uh, itself. Um, again, uh, um, I was just talking to someone who mentioned about uh, Larry Diamond, who was talking about democratization of the Middle East. One of the things that he was arguing in the uh, 1990s was that the only real way you expect democracy in the Middle East is if the oil price drops. Uh, uh, because of this analysis we've had that oil, high oil prices is linked to authoritarianism. In fact, we've had oil, oil prices, but we've had the Arab Spring. And this has impacted not just, I mean, I think in a sense the oil rich countries have had a greater, perhaps a greater capacity to manage this than the others. Nevertheless, they're feeling very much under the strain of what is happening. So, in fact, in the Middle East, we've had a somewhat counter cyclical process. Yeah, increasing energy oil prices have led to to actual political liberalisation, perhaps democratisation there. Um, the shifts uh, towards a more anti-Western uh, and greater authoritarianism have been in other parts of the world. In Russia, um, um, but not only in Russia, perhaps in other parts of the former Soviet Union, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, um, also uh, in Latin America, not just Venezuela, but also spreading out to Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru. Um, uh, Africa to some degree as well you can see these, these shifts um, the second dimension I think of similarities and differences uh, is that um, clearly the 1970s uh, have impacted and the 2000s have impacted upon western imports um, but in the 2000s uh, the source of the problem and the impact of them have actually been on a lot of non-western countries particularly on China uh, and India, which has given an added dimension to this, that clearly energy security is not just a Western problem, it's also a Chinese problem. Um, and the book I was wrote was partly attempting to deal with how China is dealing with its energy insecurity. Now, theoretically, in a sense, there should be a convergence of interests between China and West over the policy problems of energy insecurity. They should, in a sense, have a common interest in the stability of the Middle East, in ensuring that uh, oil flows securely from the Middle East and other parts of the world. 
Um, and so there is, and I think there is in many ways some commonality of interest between China uh, and the West. However, there is also anxiety about this. And the anxiety about that is also because I think China is dealing with the problem of its energy insecurity in a different way from the West, which is that it's very much based upon a state-led approach, um, that it is utilizing state-owned companies, state-owned national armed companies, um, and that it is emphasizing its political relations with these countries rather than purely allowing the market to operate. Uh, and so you have a very major expansion of Chinese interests in the Middle East, but globally, Latin America, uh, Central Asia, Russia, Africa, increasing presence of China, um, strong diplomatic dimension to it, strong role of national companies played in this. And this has led to lots of anxieties that these Chinese companies are operating in ways which don't fit completely to Western norms and practices. Um, uh, and that China is... Uh, um, not operate with a level playing field, that it is financing this through state coffers, that it is privileging diplomatic relations, ignoring political conditionality, etc. And that it is trying to literally control these resources around the world. Um, and Robert Zelig, I think, who is the US Under Secretary of State, states in 2005 that China is causing a cauldron of anxiety over its energy policy. Um, so that's a second difference, I think, that it's, it's linked to this broader other shift away from West to East, and the differences in approach between West and East and how to deal with it. And the third dimension is, I think, that it, it also, there is an ideological value-driven dimension to this. In the 1970s, it was very much linked to dependency thing, to North-South divisions. Um, uh, and I think, in a sense, that, that has come back with a different inflection to it. Um, and what we called in the project, uh, um, the European project, is a soundbite, sort of state capitalist. Um, the reality is that if you compare the 1960s to now, in the 1960s, international oil companies controlled 90% of all oil reserves. Now they control around about 10%. And it is national oil companies. Um, national oil companies primarily in those countries, these countries and others, who control oil reserves. And these are, as it were, national oil companies. Many of them are, are very efficient and operate uh, to international standards. And, but nevertheless, they have a very strong role the state plays in determining their policy. Um, and you also have the fact that it is Chinese state oil companies which are becoming, as it were, almost hybrid international oil companies. They're both international companies with their international interests, but they're also national oil companies. Um, I think uh, what the notion of state capitalism bring, tries to bring out in a sense is that, that this shift towards greater role for the state, greater interventionist role for the state, is one which is fundamentally challenging the dominant paradigm of international economy which existed in the 1980s and 1990s. Um, and th this has a political logic to it. You can see it, for example, in Russia. Um, where you get a, a rejection of the 1990s, which is not just Putin re-centralizing power, but actually saying that, um, you know, in the 1990s our oil was stolen by these criminal oligarchs um, who then invested in Chelsea and other English football clubs. Um, and that what we need to do is for people to regain control over these resources. 
Um, and, and part of the popularity of Chavez and others uh, is related to that. I mean, interesting in a way, the Middle East never did <coughs> privatize or liberalize their, their national companies in the 1970s. So that didn't happen there. But you get, definitely get a, 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 um, a shift. And I think it's also linked to this, is a, within the West, a certain um, clearly um, uh, less confidence in the system and the more liberalized system established, where you get particularly, for instance, the, uh, um, the whole development of the futures market within oil uh, has not actually led to decreasing volatility prices, it's actually led to increase of volatility prices. Many people actually that the high increase of prices in the 2000s was as much driven, was not driven by OPEC, but actually uh, by traders in the city uh, who were trading these uh, on uh, um, uh, futures markets. And clearly also you get a very strong role for the state dealing with climate change. You can't see any energy policy discussions now in Britain, other countries in Germany, otherwise, a very strong state interventionist role in domestic energy policy because of the need to deal with climate change. Um, so I think if, if I broaden this out in the final part to just looking at it from a sort of more global perspective, IR perspective, and, and how, how it leads to this, um, there are bits and pieces which can be added in, which is also, there are technological shifts that take place, you know, technology changes and creates new economic and political dynamics. And one of the things that, which is very, uh, about if you were talking about five or six years ago, this common mantra that often said that the US wants to be energy independent, treated just as a joke, it's a sort of illusion that the US had that it could be energy independent. Now, you know, five or six years afterwards, it's not such a, a joke because uh, there's been major technological innovations which are found through fracking this complex process, finding massive potential domestic sources of uh, gas uh, and oil. Um, where there's quite serious consideration that by about 2030, the US will be energy, well, the US Northern Hemisphere, with Mexico and Canada with it. Uh, will be energy self-sufficient or not actually rely on imports. Uh, there will be a bit, bit of exports and imports, but essentially you get a big shift away from the US being the common conception the US is dependent upon the Persian Gulf for its energy resources. Um, um, and in Europe, in a sense, you, know, you also get this uh, other side of it, which is the climate change dimension. Um, Europe in particular is very committed to. Um, um, which is a, you know, a determination, uh, more of a regional than a global determination, to reduce our dependence upon fossil fuels to ensure that we have um, sustained our climate at a, a 2% increase, uh, rather than seeing it uh, uh, um, uh, lead to all the problems that, that might emerge with a very severe warming of the global, uh, global climate. Um, so I think uh, one way of thinking about this is that what you can see in a sense is three different regional dynamics or three different ways of dealing with the problem of energy security. We all have energy security problems, uh, but how are the different regions are responding to this? I think in Asia, if you take Asia as a whole, this is where most, a large part of the oil and gas is moving to, from the Persian Gulf region, Middle East, Africa and elsewhere, to China and India. That's where most of the growth is going to come over the next 20 years. They are developing countries. 
China and India. They're very, very dependent and wanting to develop their priority development. Uh, they want to have the same standards of living in the West, which is not an unreasonable thing to, to wish. Um, uh, and so there is a very strong concern over, uh, over ensuring that they have security of supply. And to do that, they are developing very intensive political relations with countries from the Middle East and other parts of the world. Um, this is also a mutual relationship with, uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and other countries also investing in Asia. Uh, it is very much a state-to-state -state level, a state capitalist model, um, uh, and in a sense, a fairly traditional conception of energy security in the Asian dimension. Um, the US, you know, I think is, is shifting, and it's questionable how, how this is going to, um, where this is going to shift. Uh, having increased um, supplies of domestic and much cheaper energy, it's actually now gas, is much cheaper there than in other parts of the world. In fact, you get energy-intensive industries now shifting away from China back to the United States, which is one of the factors which is fueling the limited economic recovery in the United States. Um, I think most people would say that there's going to be a, a reduction of interest in the issue of climate change and carbon reductions in the United States. Um, and in this question, I'll leave it open for debate whether this will have an impact upon U.S. policy in the Middle East. I think there are multiple factors that the U.S. engaged in the Middle East. But certainly, it's always been assumed that oil was a very principal factor behind it. Um, and a lot of questions about this, because in a sense, even if the U.S. is self-sufficient, the oil price is still something which is globally dependent. Oil price is set globally, not regionally. Um, but I think there are serious things to think about, particularly in the context of whether this is a secular shift in US policy from disengagement from Iraq, Afghanistan, etc., whether this is something which is uh, important. But I think less interested in climate change, more interested in the economic uh, aspects of this, uh, a wish to secure and ensure that self-sufficiency uh, into the future. And that leaves Europe, in a sense, which has this formal policy of a shift away from from fossil fuels to low carbon fuels, very much driven by the European Union, um, which has very ambitious targets uh, for this. Uh, and I think a lot of social, probably societal, commitments to this as, as something which is important in terms of leadership of Europe and in terms of its global policies. But I think there are other aspects which are becoming more and more evident with this, is that as it's doing this, it, it becomes increasingly fractious relations with uh, oil uh, exported countries, with the Middle East and with Russia. It's, uh, it's not very sort of, you know, if you can imagine from their perspective, if they say, if Europe is saying, well actually we're not going to need your products in the future, it doesn't necessarily produce a very good reaction from them, and only increases their desire to develop stronger relations with Asia. Um, and particularly as they argue that you should liberalize the policy is still very much on liberalization of your policies, privatization of your policies, create very fractious relations with Russia and the Middle East countries as well. And I think internally you find a lot of issues within Europe about the economic costs of this, as if, uh, that um, the policies towards that have quite serious economic impacts, which is leading to increasing, goes down to the consumer business, of increasing energy prices within Europe. Um, and increasing tensions uh, over that on the domestic level. In fact, uh, 
you're probably not an audience, I was with my mother and I went to Sunday Mail uh, at the weekend, uh, which regularly has these things about how climate change is ridiculous, how spending far too much money in Europe, and there's, uh, they actually mentioned this, uh, um, and this power, um, the Drax project, which has got the go-ahead, um, which is to um, convert uh, a coal-based uh, um, 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 uh, power generation in the north of England, which runs about 7% uh, of the electricity within Britain, with uh, wood ship from the United States, which would be vast areas of the forestry in the United States, which will be cut down and made into the wood chips, uh, brought over to Europe, to Britain, and then put into this fire, into this um, um, uh, uh, power station. Um, principally at the cost of around about an extra billion pounds a year, um, uh, but primarily to reduce the emissions, which is its target set by the European Union, its carbon emissions. Um, and uh, uh, that person uh, is arguing that this is economically not viable when you get the situation where China is producing, is uh, creating uh, every week a new coal uh, power uh, <laughs> um, uh, generator each, um, uh, each, each week. So, I mean, in terms of the global impact, this is very limited. Um, and it's not an unreasonable argument, in a sense, from that perspective. But, uh, but it does leave one rather pessimistic about the prospects of, uh, of, of, of future in terms of dealing with uh, climate change. Um, but I think, in a sense, what I was trying to do was, was to give you a little bit about how the 2000s in energy security is being transformed in this period. Um, but it does, it is leading to shifts in power in international relations. Um, has political consequences to it, um, and how you do have very divergent policies being adopted in different parts of the world uh, as a consequence of that. Thank you, really very fascinating. I mean, you've given us so much food for thought. And also, historically very complex and nuanced, looking at the 1960s, 1970s, and of course, 1980s and 90s and 2000 now. And here we are. I'm sure we have, we have many questions and we have almost 40 minutes, plenty of time, and I'm sure we can do a lot of damage in 40 minutes. So, uh, first question, who would like to, please? Yeah. Um, just want to pick up on the point about US disengagement due to its energy independence, sure gas revolution. And uh, there's this, um, like, people are thinking that the US will not continue to provide the public good. And uh, we also see that like, there's a possibility of a power vacuum in that, in that area, um, and also in the Indian Ocean. And this also coincides with China's building up of the blue water Navy, and is being more aggressive in the waters, Straits of Malacca and South China Sea. Um, what do you think of China taking up the dimension of providing public security uh, as compared to the U.S. redrawing um, what's the prospect? Yeah, I mean, that, that's, I mean that's, that's a very critical question. And I think in some ways, um, uh, part of what you said is a factor why I think the United States will not withdraw <laughs> the very fact that you know, if it were to be replaced by an increased Chinese presence, which would, uh, which would increase, uh, is a very important factor, I think, significant factor, in, in why the US will continue to have an interest in trying to provide these public goods. Now, I think... Um, I mean, the way it's, it's um, um, I mean, I, I haven't really got the full answer to this. I, I think the domestic, I mean, the wise will know more of the domestic politics of the United States. 
And there's certainly a number of factors. I think, you know, in a way, when you're looking at the US global role, it's a somewhat simplistic to say it's purely driven by oil. I mean, oil provides a very important dimension to that. But even at the present time, the US only relies on around about 20% of its oil from the Middle East. So it's not as though vast majority, most of that oil is actually going to other parts of the world. Um, and if you're looking at uh, US, broader US interests, and if you're looking, it's, it's, it's about its desire to provide a global framework for sort of liberal capitalist order. It's a sort of John Eikenbury type of approach. It's, it's a liberal leviathan. Um, and it wishes to, uh, to, ensure, uh, to ensure that. Um, so, uh, and it's always had that interest to, to provide. And I suppose its, it's principal aim, in a sense, is to try to convert China to becoming a partner in that broader liberal ambition and goal. Um, uh, and I think it wouldn't have a problem in the sense uh, if China sort of democratized and then sort of uh, became pro-Western and supported the uh, Clearly, the um, um, but the fact that I think uh, we do have this um, very elemental difference between China and the United States, which is that China is a sort of remains an authoritarian and a communist state, having you define a communist state. Uh, and it is, is, uh, sees itself as, as sort of in contradiction to the United States. It's a very powerful fact which leads the United States to continue to be, contribute to um, global security. And what it's trying to do, I think, in a sense, is shift away from the Middle East to Asia, where its real interests are. In a sense, if you're looking at this from the US perspective, if you're looking at the major sites of international conflict, they are the South China Sea, East China Sea, India, China, and clearly, the US still plays a very major role in managing the balance of power in Asia. Um, but it always gets sort of condemned to the for Middle East because uh, all these problems emerge there, which we need to be dealt with. Um, however, I think on the other side, so I think there is that global side. On the other hand, you do have this sort of, you, know, you do get a, a, a situation now where I think there is um, um, uh, a bit like post-Vietnam, where there's a sense that US global power is diminishing somehow. That it's expended enormous resources on Afghanistan and Iraq, no little impact. But there is a desire to retrench and not to engage in intervention around the world, which decreases its sort of, I mean, certainly the perceptions of the US uh, is becoming, uh, within different parts of the region, is the sense that it is not becoming so active. And that changes the political dynamics. Um, uh, and you do get, in a sense, you know, China is developing fast its, 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 its military capacity. Um, it is, you know, um, uh, becoming more assertive in areas like South China Seas and East China Seas. You do have a dynamic emerging there. And quite naturally, in a sense, China reaches to be a global power which reflects its economic power. Um, and so, you know, whether that dynamic in the US will continue to sort of, you know, the energy self-sufficiency will contribute to internal domestic debate saying, well, look, um, uh, you know, why do we need to bother about the Middle East to other parts of the world? We get no gratitude for it. Uh, and it doesn't seem to do us much good. Um, but that might feed into uh, domestic politics. We already get very interesting things like saying, well, why do we need to bother to be in Japan and in Germany, you know, we have these bases there. Called, you know, 
into the Cold War, we still got major military bases. Why did we get from there? Um, I don't know if you have that. But you're fascinating, and you're absolutely correct. I mean, the reality is uh, there's a huge debate in the United States. There has been a huge debate in the last 20 or 30 years about the United States should become less reliant on the decent oil. But uh, America's addiction to oil has done a great deal of damage yeah. to American oil policy. It has basically brought about major military uh, adventures uh, in the Middle East over the years. And in, in the last, in particular in the last five years or so, there has been a very systemic shift. Uh, America's foreign and economic policies from the greater Middle East to the Pacific region, where uh, US foreign policy, many, there's a consensus that America's future lies in the Pacific region, broadly defined. Uh, and uh, the reality is that there has been a retrenchment from the Middle East, Iraq, Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's uh, in my most recent book, I, I call it the end of America's uh, moment in the Middle East question mark. It really reminds me of Britain's roles at the end of World War II, uh, the end of Britain's moment in, in, in the end of 1940s for a variety of reasons, because also the lack of kind of political will on the part of I mean, remember when we talk about America and the East that the 9-11 wars cost the United States $4.5 trillion. Uh, $4.5 trillion. And I know this, these are not my numbers. This is Brown's University uh, economic department numbers. Uh, of course, the United States is very wealthy. It can afford $4.5 billion, I mean, let's say, gamble in a casino. But the opportunity costs where the United States, you know, was chasing, you know, bands of jihadists in the West and bands of Afghanistan and Pakistan, the world was moving on. China and India and Brazil and Turkey. China now is the second largest purchaser of Middle East and oil and gas. India is almost there. Um, and I think I agree very much with, with Roland about uh, even though America by 2030, it's estimated that the United States will become relatively. Middle East is important not just because the United States is really imports 25% of Persian oil. There are $325 trillion invested in Persian uh, oil money in uh, Western financial institutions. Uh, and think of the numbers if they are correct, based on some economists, $325 trillion. Um, and I think, as Roland said, the United States is also interested, has been since World War II in the international global economy or the neoliberal uh, international economic order. It's not just oil for America, oil from the Persian Gulf fuels, I mean, the world economy, cheap oil from the region. So even though the United States is not as dependent on the decent oil, and even though the United States is shifting its foreign and economic policies from the Middle East to the Pacific region. The Middle East is important. It's important because, I mean, I still have more than two-thirds of, of, of oil and gas resources in this part of the world, and many parts of the world, the world economy, not just uh, China and India, but Europe and other countries, Japan, depend on this, and investments, huge investments, not to mention. And this is where, where I think I really would like to ask Roland to I think um, what's missing, uh, and I'm sure it, it, it is all there in the book, is, is the political veil. So it's one thing to say that, I mean, there are shifts in the global balance of power, and in particular in when we talk about 
the, the energy producers. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have, particularly since I mean, 1970s, but the reality is these countries are not independent. These countries rely on their, for the security umbrella on the United States, but they are terribly dependent, even in 2000. Mm -hmm. The reality is they have tons of money, I mean, the cash, the reserve, but these countries are very fragile. The lack of institutional independence, the lack of any kind of civil society, and, and the, the, the political uprisings in the last few years have made them much more conscious of their vulnerabilities and their dependence on the United States. Where are the largest American bases now in the world? They're not in Germany and Japan. They are now in the Gulf, in Qatar and Kuwait. And, I mean, most of the bulk of U.S. forces now, I would say, are, even though the United States has pulled its forces from I mean, Iraq and it's pulled its forces from, but the fact is most of the American military bases are located in that part of the world because the relationship is, I mean, there's an umbilical pool between Gulf states and American security. So because of, I mean, not just America's reliance on all, the, the sums of money involved people are huge. The biggest cash flow in the world is not in China and India. The biggest cash flow in the world is in the part of the world. And now, it's in particular in the last, uh, I mean, uh, they have huge sums of money. Uh, whether in the United Arab Emirates or Qatar or Kuwait or Saudi Arabia, and these resources are very much needed now. Uh, but the question to you is really, uh, how do you, in terms of the shift of power, I mean, yes, economically, but politically, there has really been no shift in the sense that these countries are, given the fact that frontier states, given the fact they're not really the relationship between civil society and, and the establishment, uh, the political establishment, makes them really quite very weak states yeah. and they cannot really exercise yeah. power in the same way that we think of power. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, in a sense, I, I need to follow through. I mean, in a sense, um, uh, there was a shift over the 1970s, in a sense. Yes. That was a, yeah, of course. That was a shift. Yes. So, I mean, in, in essence, you know, they, uh, you know the, the shift to get you know the 1980s to 1990s continue you know the the dependence from the United States to particularly the Gulf states uh, and Saudi Arabia um, um, and, and I suppose the what I was saying really for the 2000s is that this shift is more evident in Russia yes. and in Venezuela Latin America rather than the Middle East. The Middle East has a particular context. I mean there is a dimension to this which is Iran. Yes, and part of that. Security weakness of those of the um, of, of, of the Gulf states is very much linked to that. Iran and previously Iraq in a sense as well. Um, uh, the particular particular particularities of of the um, uh, of, of of the uh, pressure of security. Um, so I think in, you know that that's uh, and uh, you know a very critical dimension. You know the source of energy security in the world in the sense of the the compact between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Yes. And it is that the United States provides the security to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia provides the sort of um, um, surplus capacity, which can ensure, to, uh, to some degree, the uh, reduction of volatility of policies uh, for global oil uh, global policies. Well, do you see, how do you see, I mean, China, despite, uh, I mean, it's very easy for us to talk about America's relative decline and what yeah. have you. But the reality is China has been reluctant to step forward yeah. to take any kind of leadership, even in the Middle East, it seems, even India. So for many years, even, I mean, the reality is America will be with us for many, many years to come in terms of leadership, in terms of uh, 
How do you see China's role in the Middle East? Because they're so, despite all the, the economic activities, they have refrained from playing any active political role. They have really not taken any major interests yeah. uh, politically. How do you see China and India? These are in particular the shift to the East. Uh, uh, there seem to be a reluctance, uh, I mean, deep reluctance to really play the role that uh, great powers historically have played. Is this an out of time, do you think, that, uh, or is this really more in, in the lack of institutional, um, I mean, fake institutions and, and transparent uh, relationship between politics and, and networks and needs and what have you? I think there's, there's many levels to this. I mean, on one level, there's a sort of, there's a reluctant acceptance that the US does provide a public good as Chinese benefits. Uh, although it doesn't really like the way the US obviously tries to translate that public yes. right, and goes in Iraq, etc. But nevertheless, that, that the US, and you know, we are still talking about a military capacity which is very, very small compared to, to the United States, and no capacity to engage in the Middle East. Absolutely, or even I mean, project power in the same way that the US does. I, mean, I think, in a way, when you see uh, the real challenge is, is on a much more local level, South China Sea and East China Sea. Where you do get, you know, a real Chinese national interest, where yes. this could have ricochet effect. Um, and the longer-term project is clearly this, this, this but that will be many, many. Um, I mean, I think um, uh, another side to this is that, um, you know, the way I think China does play a role. I mean, it, it does not. Uh, it it, um, um, uh, it has a long-term role, which is seeking to develop good relations. It's, it's very present there. It's, it's, uh, um, there are lots of visits. I mean, there is that sort of diplomatic side to it, and it does have a role in the sense that I think it hides behind. You know, in a way, there is a um, a joint action between Russia and China. So you do get action you know, policies vis-à-vis Iranian sanctions, which is essentially China and Russia going together, having quite a significant impact upon the nature of sanctions, or on Syria. I don't think you know in the sense that it's. All the emphasis goes on Russia, but China is taking a very similar role. So, in a way, um, and to, to the, uh, so I think, in a sense, that that uh, um, it's trying to develop a coalition, in a sense, of countries, not only Russia but many other emerging countries, which says uh, that Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, uh, which seeks to sort of reduce or limit the capacity of the United States and Western countries to intervene uh, in, in, in that part of the world in a slightly arbitrary uh, fashion, or they see it in arbitrary fashion. So I think there is there is a political power there which, which is being used. Peace. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I have a couple of questions. I was asked one for now. Where do you see the dynamic going between the power and influence of government policy making, especially the US and Western and international oil companies. Um, Shell or Exxon Mobil, Mobil can choose where they want to go. They can look for offshore gas in Latin America and have the need for the real diversification. Um, at what point does the US have to decide? You know, US has to decide right now, are we going to um, start looking to be a, a gas exporter? But that's what impact will that have? And maybe we want to hold off on that. At what point does the, do the companies just decide that for and start shifting the dynamic between the U.S. and the Gulf, especially whether or not the U.S. or whether or not D.C. wants to do that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, you know, the way it's, uh, I mean, even with the Chinese, in the sense, I mean, just say the Chinese, you know, these companies are independent actors. <laughs> they do fit in, which means states, uh, the state control of them is very limited. So there is, a, I think it's important to say there is a, that there is a, there is an international market where companies operating which, which act, which seek to make profits and to determine their policies and basis of So issues like, you know, should we export gas? from the US will be very much based upon um, the, uh, the interests of the companies, whether it's more profitable to do so uh, abroad, uh, to sell it abroad and to, and to import gas or whatever. So I think the, these are very much, uh, I mean, there is clearly, sometimes comes into the issue, such as you know, there's a big issue over where a Chinese company seeking to, uh, to, to buy Unicard, which is an American-based company. Um, so sometimes there is competitive laws. And, there is, you know, a lot of companies are now saying to the United States and to Europe, look, in this more state capitalist world, we need to have greater fiscal support uh, for our actions. You know, you need to get involved and, and do deals with these, these countries and, uh, and, and, and make it easier for us to compete. So there is a sort of dynamic to say that the companies, you know, we need greater state support. Um, the international companies do have certain advantages in that they do have greater, they have, uh, you know, great experience of managing complex projects. Um, they have um, um, uh, they have access to large uh, financial resources as well, capital markets and things. So they're not out of the game. Um, uh, and they do play a very important role. Um, but they are feeling on the defensive in a sense, uh, compared to national companies, particularly national companies which become more efficient and more capable of, of competing with them. Uh, but there is, in the sense, you know, you shouldn't think of it as all driven by states, in the sense that there is also this very dynamic uh, international market. Questions? Please. Well, very interesting by uh, the manner in which you illustrated that energy security can have very different meanings. And I was thinking about the way in which these different meanings can come into conflict with each other. To mind comes the case of Germany, which in the last years has basically shut down all of its nuclear power plants. And in that sense, lives up to energy security in the sense that we won't have any Chernobyl or Fukushima kind of incidents. But at the same time, it lowers its energy security in the sense that it becomes very dependent on Russia. Uh, in particular, um, over last years, it has uh, established the Nord Stream pipeline, which established a direct connection. Uh, related to that, I was wondering what you think of the prospect of the European Union diversifying its energy supplies and becoming more, less vulnerable, uh, if you will, and now that the US has become more energy uh, independent as well. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, energy security is, it, it, you know, once you're dealing with this sort of mix of resources, you know, clearly, you know, as you say, the nuclear issue has a particular security dimension, which is, you know, Fukushima, yeah. a very different set of interests, you know, and, and proliferation, global proliferation. Um, uh, and then gas has a very particular interest in Europe because that's linked to Russia very much and then you get worried about what Russia is doing. Um, uh, uh, and then you have sort of you know, alternatives which, which uh, provide energy. I mean, in a sense, something like coal is interesting because actually we have abundant supplies of coal uh, domestically. Fantastic for energy security, but yes. very bad for climate. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the paradox is that something like Germany now is building these coal precisely because it has to find something to replace 
or relying on Poland to, to import it. Uh, the Polish are very happy about this today. So you know, they're, they're very complex interrelations with, with energy security. So, I mean, I suppose the, um, you know, the broader issue I was trying to say is that you know, the, when you get to the bottom line, European policy is going to be a very expensive policy. Um, and I think you're now seeing sort of quite a strong reaction against that from German business owners about how the extra costs of this, you know, how this gives them an enormous competitive advantage to the United States. Um, and in fact, it's you know, maybe a major factor to leading to US again becoming economically more dynamic than, than Europe. Um, um, so it's, 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 and it, you also get these very, as a consequence, you get, you, you get policy really um, fractured between different competing groups, those in favor of renewables, those in favor of nuclear, those in favor of gas, those in favor of whatever it is, you know, biomass, whatever, and, and quite different, you know, so I think there's quite a lot of, uh, of, of, of conflict within Europe, which is linked also to the way that it, this has become, in a sense, I think, there's a, there's a way in which EU grabs onto issues to be global leader of. And climate change is the big one, in a sense. It was economic energy liberalisation earlier. Um, I think logically, in a way, you know, in an uncertain world, in a sense, what you tend to do is just sort of, I mean, you don't know the future. You don't know what gas price is going to be, you don't know what oil price is going to be, you don't know what new renewables might emerge in the future, what great you know, you, you try to have a diverse set of resources that you utilize and you don't, you don't kick wheels you try to have a framework in, in which you have a, you know, a, a spread of, of, of energy sources which gives you security but that is a complex thing to, to try and translate into policy particularly within democratic politics which, which is in a short term it doesn't have that longer term dimension we're looking for 2030-2050 so you get the sort of mess that British energy policy is that's why I thought it was a strange decision of Germany to shut down everything. Um, basically, an overreaction to the incident in Fukushima and domestic pressures. But in essence, the nuclear option, it is both clean and it allows you to, to diversify your energy portfolio, so to, to lower your dependence on external sources of energy. So then to shut them down seems like a... Well, this is one of the things, I think this is a sort of very much a societal thing. It's, it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a very deep, I think, feeling within amongst much of the German public, which is anti-nuclear. It goes back to the Social Democrats, the Greens, and it's the, in a sense, there's a dynamic of the greening of the political parties. You know, the Greens are really I, I have a question for you, because I think you really touched uh, from my mind. As you know, in the last and years or so there has been a great deal of theorizing about America's decline, yeah. economic decline. And, uh, in light of what we know now, in terms of, I mean, the, the, in terms of the technological revolution that basically promises to really give the United States energy efficiency, what does it mean for American power? Since really you talked about shifting global power. Uh, in terms of long term, I mean, I know we know very little so far. Uh, and this and related question, to me, Russia is the most fascinating really player in this, in all of this. Has Russia been able to really maximize its energy resources? I mean, uh, why, in, in other words, why has Russia really failed to use its energy resources and the global shift in a much more effective way? 
Is it, I think, to come back to the qualities, is it really like, the, 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 this uh, authoritarianism, the new authoritarianism in Russia, that even though you would expect Russia to be at the top of the world, given the, the resources that it has, it has really failed to use its resources in a much more effective way than it has so far. Yeah, I think um, there should be questions. I, mean, I, I don't know the. I mean, in a sense, what's peering into the future in that sense? I mean, one of the I mean, one of the interesting factors is that you know basically you're you're, you're getting a, a vital uh, input into the U.S. economic system. It's become a cheap, a relatively cheap in other parts of the world, um, and that that creates a competitive advantage, which uh, you know the U.S. economy is still very dynamic, of course, very dynamic. So you could see this, and you know, you could see you know a, a bit like the sort of you know, uh, the, you know, when Japan was thought to be the great next threat to the United States, and then you get to sort of reassertion of US economic power. So I think one shouldn't factor out the, 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 the prospect that the US will emerge from this um, uh, economic dynamic, um, which will clearly give it confidence in politics and political affairs. So, um, I mean, there's, uh, I don't know enough about the US domestic economy to know how the other bits, political paralysis and things. It's a big factor, obviously. It's a big factor. I mean, on Russia, I mean, in a sense, I mean, one answer to the question is that uh, you know, the, you know, the, the, there is always an illusion that you can use energy as a political resource. The Arab oil weapon is never really a oil weapon, um, and uh, Russia ultimately, you know, it depends upon consumers in Europe and elsewhere. So it doesn't want to undermine those relations too much, because otherwise they'll diversify away. So there's always an interest in, in, uh, um, in cooperation as much as conflict. Um, I mean, uh, in a way, um, uh, you know, I think um, when you're looking at Russia, I mean, clearly, uh, it's also put in perspective that it, it went through a major decline in the 1990s, a catastrophic decline in power. Um, and if you look at Putin, I mean, it's, it's, it's still, uh, you know, it's been fairly fast growth rates there. But, um, uh, it is very corrupted, it is very, um, uh, you know, um, uh, increasingly domestically unpleasant in terms of politics there. Um, uh, but, you know, it's uh, who's making the waves in the Middle East, in Syria, who's, who's leading, you know, um, Taking major roles in different parts of the world, in Central Asia, Iran, uh, North Korea, etc. It still has a, it still has a major influential role to play, I think. Um, uh, and um, uh, you know, it has got a lot of other factors of declining populations um, and still problems of a broader economy, which is not very effective. Um, but I think, you know, in some senses, its, it's position is uh, vast, considerably more influential than it was. And any other questions? I'm sure there are many questions. Uh, anyone else who has not asked any questions? <laughs> Please. Um, can I ask a question about OPEC? Yeah. Um, and so, according to your thesis, it seems they would have more power at the moment. Uh, as the power goes more to producers, and you have very high oil prices, which seem to become the new normal. Um, but if you have rising supply outside of OPEC in Canada, the US, um, Brazil, East Africa, other places, 
Um, and then you have different new dynamics within OPEX, so you have the rise of Iraqi production again. And then you also have the rise of break-even crisis. So after the Arab Spring, lots of countries are spending more on kind of social um, subsidies and all sorts of things. Is this a big threat to OPEC coherence? Um, will the new supplies mean that price ends up going down and kind of production discipline fails? Um, and what does it mean for your um, general theory? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in a way, obviously, like like any sort of cartel or whatever, it, 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 it's uh, stronger when there when there's a when um, demand is greater than supply, then things break apart. <laughs> when, yeah. when when things change, um, uh, and supply. I mean, in a way, uh, the, the um, uh, and also the way in which OPEC operate. I mean, the degree to which OPEC actually manages to make much impact upon oil prices is a, is, is a topic in itself. Um, and in fact, you often find that uh, now, I mean, the debate is whether it's actually the financial, you know, the paper oil, the trade oil, which is really determining oil prices. And I mean, we've got uh, Luciani, Giacomo Luciani, who's, who's, who's said actually, you know, um, one of the things he said is actually Saudi Arabia could set the price of oil. It deliberately does not seek to do that. And paradoxically, Sometimes you know it sells its oil at the price of the yeah. of the yeah, uh, well, the market saying <laughs> which is actually a tiny percentage which is actually traded uh, on, on open markets. Um, so there's a whole question about. I mean, but clearly, um, but the the issue is in a way whether this. There are two issues. One is whether you know demand. Again, one of the things that people are expecting is still that the demand is increasing, and that um, uh, investment has not been sufficient in the past. Um, so most most sort of the markets are expecting some sort of crunch later on uh, in the decade, and I think they're pricing that in. I mean, there's an odd thing at the moment that actually we have a, a lot of supply of oil, but still high prices. You know. So it's not being driven purely to, by demand and supply factors, but um, by by expectation of future high prices. Now these could change, obviously, uh, if that if that uh, um, uh, does not emerge. Um, uh, but I mean, people like I and mean, then people are saying that you know, uh, there's a very Paul Stevens is a major oil analyst, expecting some sort of crunch energy again. There could be a, another period where you get a sort of major, either a major political crisis in the Middle East, or actually a sort of just a, a, a crisis in terms of the rise of which will lead to a further increase in the cost of oil mm-hmm. up to 180, 200 dollars a barrel. But also, clearly, if there is major diversification and demand does reduce, then OPEC will be will be struggling, and then you'll have the sort of situation in the 1980s, which was of you know, major social tensions in Middle Eastern countries. And as you mentioned, you know now Saudi Arabia depends on a very high price of oil to manage its population. Probably less flexible about it. There is a major collapse in prices than it was in the 1980s or so. So I think the uh, you know that the um, um, and I think, in a way, one of the things is that you know the, uh, uh, there's a limit to what Saudi government or other government or rich countries. You know, it's not as though the population is saying, you know, you're a wonderful government because you found all this oil. And, you know, they're actually they say this is our oil, and you're wasting it by corrupt practices. You know, so they're under pressure in a sense from society. They can buy it off to some degree, but it doesn't resolve their political problems, and so they. Um, there is a dynamic that is emerging, which is somewhat separate from the price of oil. I think you can see this 
the way that you know, the Arab Spring occurring at the time of high oil prices, the, oil, the relation, correlation between lack of democracy and oil, high oil prices, or not, you know, doesn't really work anymore. One last question. Anyone who has not asked question would like to have the last uh, say? Please. Um, just my, didn't really talk much about sustainable energy and how that fits into the security paradigm. So, for example, uh, just hearing the other day about in the Uganda, they're actually they're going from a poor, low-oil economy, jumping ahead of fossil fuels to geothermal energy plants. <coughs> so they're finding drilling to ground, you know, getting something that's rather sustainable. Um, and how, how does that shift global paradigm fit into this whole paradigm of security? Yeah. Well, in a way, I mean, uh, as many people, uh, would, I mean, I, I, at the beginning of it, I said that, you know, in a sense, you know, there is a view of an issue which is a completely proper view that, you know, if we're all going to suffer from major climate change and all the impact of that, you know, energy security must include factors to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, which can reduce uh, our carbon uh, dependence upon carbon. So, you know, for a sustainable future for the world, uh, energy security without including sustainability, a shift to a low carbon economy doesn't, you know, um, is, it doesn't make sense. Well, I would argue in a sense the politics drives in different directions. Um, but I think um, 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 in a way, you know, the type of things we're looking at, I mean, the more practical question is, you know, how does one move towards, say, uh, trying to resolve energy, and energy security in a sense will be resolved by renewables because those because uh, in a sense then you wouldn't be relying, these would primarily be domestic resources, uh, wind and sun and biomass and not reliant upon international markets and the insecurities that that produces. Um, the problem is that you know the energy from fossil fuels is very, very cheap. So you're having to in some ways uh, to to factor in um, horrible subsidies and shifts in behaviour as well as people. We're going to move towards more sustainable uh, future. Um, I think, in practice, you know, I think there, there are certain, um, uh, in terms of practical politics, I think there are certain things that you need to do. You need to have a sort of proper carbon tax. It actually taxes the carbon, um, and, and that is actually uh, then reflected in the price. Um, uh, there are certain basic, you know, in fact, if you're looking at one of the major emitters of, of, of carbon dioxide is coal. So there is a relatively easy shift you can make from coal to gas, in a sense, which would make a major impact on this. And then we better hope in the future technology, I think. I'm not sure that wind power and things at the moment is the solution to our problems. But hopefully new type of renewables. Uh, and uh, we just have to rely on hopefully human ingenuity. To you find you can we envision a scenario in our life and let's say, well, hopefully we live for 50 years. We're still thinking. I mean, I, I'm not strong on, on the, on the yeah, on te yes. technology yes. side of this. But, um, um, you know, I think, you know, the example of the fracking case, you know, there, there are a lot of investment is going in this area. Um, and, uh, you know, to get decisive shift away, you, know, you just need to have a revolution in battery, for instance. And then you can shift away from oil and uh, the use of cars and things. And then that's a major, that will be the big breakthrough.
huge society, social and other structures working that need to be changed. And, and you need to have some context where the political drive will be strong, which is some sort of, you know, as in the commentary earlier, so you need a big disaster. Yeah. <laughs> a big war, you know, if I think, it could be a sort of pessimistic view. Um, but, um, uh, you know, I think um, uh, the problem is there's so many unpredictables in this, you know, although the climate change science, I think, you know, very confident that it's right. But what the exact, you know, whether it's going to be 2%, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6% increases, or how it's going to impact on what the interdependencies are, what that's going to happen, is all very indeterminate. Um, and also what the, all these investments were making, and whether this sort of you know, political dynamics emphasizing, which seems to suggest both Asia and the United States going in a very different direction, is going to impact upon the global politics. Um, and whether Europe would be a sort of trailblazer. Well. Well, we really very appreciative for this really wonderful and fascinating and informative talk. Thank you. Thank you.